welcome everybody to the reset show 10 i can't believe i'm saying that already where have the weeks gone um i'm absolutely delighted to, to be joined by dr bill mitchell today who will formally introduce in just a second um so welcome to our guests who've joined us live and if you're listening via podcast or youtube thank you for downloading or watching we really appreciate it so we're going to have a really interesting conversation with, with Bill today about um, resilience, well-being, hugely timely conversation, I think, with lots of us kind of motoring towards Christmas and feeling slightly ready and ready for the break and a little bit burnt out. Um, the eagle-eyed among you might notice that uh, we, we don't have any Justin today, which we're gutted about, Justin's gutted about. Um, unfortunately, something came up and he wasn't able to join us. So for those of you that join regularly, you'll know um, Justin's business is Everyday Resilience. So he was super excited to meet Bill. So unfortunately, Justin can't be here today. Uh, neither can uh, Belinda either. So you've just got me and Katie today. So hopefully we'll 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 do the crowd, Katie. What do you think? Um, we'll give it a uh, best shot. Obviously, big, yeah. big shoes to fill. <laughs> so yeah. So. Katie and I will be your hosts today. Um, just a little bit about the Reset Show for those of you who are maybe new to the Reset Show. Um, we, we came up with this idea um, 20 weeks ago now, which just seems crazy, back in the summer, it was July, back in the heady days of the, of the British summer, where we, we were thinking about, you know, um, how we can make the most of this opportunity. Um, COVID, it, you know, it's no doubt it's been incredibly traumatic and, and, and a massive drain for many of us, but with any situation like this, there are kind of silver linings. And we we saw companies kind of doing things differently with their people in a really positive way. And we thought, how can we make the most of this opportunity? How can we bring together our network of like-minded, passionate people to really consider what we can do um, on the back of the pandemic to improve the way we treat people at work and improve people's work experience? So that's kind of where this came from. Um, so yeah, we've been hosting them last 20 weeks and had fantastic guests and I was just saying to uh, to Bill how how blown away we've been actually with the generosity of people like Bill giving up their time to, to come and talk to us so massive thank you to Bill. I'm um, going to hand over to you now Katie to do a little bit of a, an introduction a formal introduction of Bill and then we can get, just get straight into the questions so over to you Katie. Brilliant thanks Emma. So Dr Bill Mitchell is a clinical psychologist, author and speaker he advises several corporations in the UK on how best to work with their employees' health at the centre of everything they do. Very topically at the moment, he is advising business leaders across the world on how to bring staff back into the office, having their employees' mental health at the heart of the move. And this September, Bloomsbury published Time to Breathe, Bill's first book. It's a really great read, full of lots of practical advice on how, to, how we can take back time to better look after ourselves and keep healthy, happy, energised, so we can thrive at work. So, Emma, I will hand over to you to uh, start the conversation. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> um, right, Bill, let's get stuck straight in. Great to hear a little bit about, you know, your background and how you how you came to this this whole field of well-being and, and mental mental health. So what, what's your journey? Tell us a bit about yourself. That's lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Emma. Hi, Katie. Um, yeah, I'm I worked as a clinical psychologist. Um, I'm Scottish. Um, I came down from uh, Aberdeen University to work in work in London, trained as a psychologist uh, there and then became increasingly interested in psychological difficulties that relate to work. 
And there weren't many people in that area when I got into it, but I could just see how many, many people are in really demanding jobs who are also very demanding of themselves, you know, conscientious, committed, often perfectionistic, often people who find it very, very difficult just to close off and create some balance for themselves. And that was quite a long time ago. And of course, since then, the working environment has got far, far busier and any natural boundaries have just, have just gone. You know, when I started out, offices closed, the lights went out, there weren't emails. Um, it was impossible for people to send you vast, vast documents to your home or, or in the weekends. There was a kind of natural, a natural boundary. Those have gone. Today, uh, emails arrive 24 hours a day. You can have massive documents arriving to your inbox, you know, at 11 at night and so on. And a lot of the people I see, because of their commitment to what they do, often their perfectionism, just find it very, very difficult to build boundaries because they constantly feel they're just letting people down and the demands never end. <clears throat> So what I was seeing was gradually more and more people who had undoubtedly been robust, resilient people. But as demands increase, they just find themselves drifting into a pathway that very, very gradually took them towards ill health. And many people just didn't have the self-awareness to where they, where they were in this, to see where they were. And um, as they became more and more overwhelmed by demand, the priority they gave just to taking care of themselves really just drifted to the periphery of their life. It was like they just didn't matter. They weren't in their priorities when they most needed to be. And then that pathway eventually could lead to burnout, to mm. depression in many cases, or just really acute anxiety states in people who hadn't had those experiences before. So, you know, it just, it was a very, very fascinating thing to observe. And uh, my job basically is to help people get back on track, uh, more self-aware, mm. but also more aware of a handful of things they need to do to actively keep themselves in balance. Mm. And that's even more relevant now, you know, with everything that's going on right now than it was, than it was a year ago. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually I mean everything you, you say is completely resonating with me and I'm sure many people on the call as well but um, you know what's been your observation of, of how you know COVID's impacted what you were already seeing you know what, what observations have you, have you seen since we've all been through the pandemic or going through the pandemic? Yeah it's been really interesting <clears throat> it's been very very interesting I mean essentially the pandemic's done three things um, to add to the story I was just talking about, it's been, it's been hugely disruptive to all of us. So our day-to-day -day routines, structures completely turned on end. We've all had to create our own structures now. And certainly some structures work better than others. Mm -hmm. And some people have had more difficulty do, doing this than other people have. So we've all been disrupted. We've been massively dislocated. Mm. People have been dislocated from friends, from families, They've been some people have been dislocated inside relationships um, and were dislocated from supportive, supportive work colleagues. Mm. Um, so many people have ended up feeling far less supported, more on their own, lonelier. But it's, you know, it's made you think about what an office does. Mm. 
And one and one of the things about working in an office is that it's immediate. Mm. It's an instant environment. You know, if you want help with an IT problem, it's available within a few seconds. Mm. If you want to check a judgment call, there's somebody in the next room. If you want advice for a technical problem, it's there. Whereas now, these things could be a few hours away. Mm. So it's less immediate. There's more potential for frustration. And also it's less reassuring. Um, a Zoom call is less reassuring than a chat with somebody in, a, in an office. So this, this location is really significant. Mm. Um, and the third thing is done, of course. It's, it's just introduced us to huge levels of uncertainty. And if anything, that uncertainty is getting worse. Um, now, I, I, I don't think we're wired for uncertainty. I think we're far, far more capable of dealing with a bad thing happening than we're capable of dealing with the possibility that a bad thing might happen. We're not good with uncertainty. And we've had eight months of that. And it looks like that's going to roll on. So if you put all those things together, together with the way people naturally pressurize themselves and the realistic demands of their jobs, which certainly haven't eased off, it's just a huge amount to balance. Mm. And many people's lives are just too finely balanced right now. Mm. You know, people talk about emotions being heightened, mm. they're more anxious, they feel flatter, they feel more tired, more easily frustrated. Mm. Um, yeah. But as you say, you know, many, many of those things were kind of happening anyway. Mm. People yeah. were conscious of the need to to get their lives in balance before all this. But I think this has just emphasised the real importance of it. Yeah. Yeah, again, that that all completely resonates with me. And I think the uncertainty piece particularly. So quite often when um, when when we do um, kind of classic sort of change training with, with teams and change readiness, we do a little change readiness diagnostic. And um, no matter how kind of, you know, tolerant for change people are, and they're kind of, some people like me actively seek change. I mean, I'm always moving house and having my hair different, you know, the one area that people always find difficult is the tolerance for ambiguity slash uncertainty. And I think no matter how much you love change, it's that not knowing that I think is, that's for me anyway, I don't know anyone else feels the same way, but it's that, that's the real stressor, isn't it? It's that just not knowing. If you, if you give me the, the worst case scenario, even if it's terrible, I can, I can, I can make plans. I can make strategies. I can, I can get my head around mm. it. But just not knowing, I think, is where so much of the stress arises, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's certainly a lot of change right now. I mean, change, change is fascinating, and how people deal with it. And of course, the change that people have most difficulty with is the change that's imposed on us, rather than the change that we engineer. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's more of that right now as well. Mm, yeah. Now we have got a, a couple of what we call our sort of special guest audience members today. So um, I, I'm not going to kind of uh, make you un unmute straight away, but Alexandra, I think you you were a special guest invited by uh, by Belinda, I believe. So hi to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Um, I don't know if you've got any any questions yourself, Alexandra. Already, if you haven't, that's fine. We can we can ask some more. But um, I know you've got a particular. I mean, I've got lo loads of questions on, in terms of yeah. So what's the answer? <laughs> That's kind <laughs> of my big question. Yes. How do we deal with this? Um, um, I thought that just one thing as well that I I don't know whether other people have noticed. So to go along with this sort of dislocation, this disruption that we're feeling, this uncertainty that we're feeling, 
Um, I think from an HR point of view as well, I think we're, we're missing the chemistry of people together in the same room. Um, and that leads to even more, I suppose that just exaggerates the uncertainty. It exaggerates the loneliness. It exaggerates all of that because, um, you know, if you are in a meeting whereby you usually move with the mood, that mood isn't there to feel anymore. And these sort of webinar things are fantastic, you know, while well, these Zoom things are fantastic to see people, but it's not the same. So I think that that adds to it. So I just want to make that observation. But but um, I was wondering as well about um, people in senior positions. So I, I, um, I watch sometimes our board members and just how much they put on their own shoulders and how um, you know, they're, they're fine for me to work on resilience for others, but actually, how do we get somebody who is a perfectionist, who is a hard worker, who, you know, they, they, you know the business is their life, uh, it, you know, but they have another life as well, but this is their life, as it were. Um, how do we get them to even start a conversation to acknowledge that actually they too are risking this vulnerability? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think right now there's a, a greater there's a greater need to have a conversation like that, and I think also there could well be a conversation like that right now could be easier than it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. I think there's a just a recognition that we're all struggling with what with what's happening right now: the dislocation, the uncertainty, uh, the disruption, and so on, and the fact that it is harder to work remotely for months at a time than it was when we were all in, in offices. So I think there's a recognition about this. And I think as a consequence of that, I think people will be more willing to be open about this. I mean, for a number of years, I've been working with quite a few organizations that are genuinely interested in keeping people well. Um, and um, that's about looking at the kind of conversations managers and senior managers could have with our people, as well as helping people at an individual level to uh, keep themselves in a good state of energy and, um, and, and, and mental well-being. <clears throat> but, and, and, you know, many managers are quite tuned into their people. They can see, for example, who isn't their usual self. They can see who's making mistakes they wouldn't normally make or who's become disconnected. Uh, who's become just slightly snappier than they normally would be. And they see those signs. And there's, there's a kind of willingness to have a conversation about that. But I think now we need to be more proactive than simply looking at some of those early signs that people may be drifting off track. And I think for managers to have conversations regularly with their people, where they're saying, look, these are really difficult times. We're running a really difficult project right now as well. Frankly, there's times when I find it really difficult. You know, I've had a few sleepless nights over the last few months. How are you? And really trying to get a, a conversation about openness and honesty about this. And then of course, those conversations could easily lead into practical ideas about what people could do to manage those demands better. And again, you know, the manager could, could take a, a lead in this just by talking about some of the practical things they've learned to do that's allowed them to get through. Yeah. I think there's, there's an opportunity for, in a sense, a psychologically safer environment right now, where it just is easier to be genuinely open. 
love that opportunity okay. for a more psychological, psychologically safe environment. I think that's a really great call. Um, Perry, I'm going to come to you. Perry's put a great question in the chat, but I think rather than me read it out, I think you should just you should just explain right. it and ask the question, Perry. All right then, yeah. So, uh, so Bill, yeah, I've um, I've described a condition. I call it peak work, where we literally have no more capacity to do any of the work we've got. We're completely full stack all the time, um, and I'm wondering how much we've been complicit in creating that. And so I look at my own habits when ubiquitous technology came in. I just filled the gaps by learning and connecting with more people and then work seeped into that and I led it I led it I didn't resist it I led it and, I, and I'm sort of inculcating that right now so I, I feel comfortable with that because I've sort of architected it but I know lots of people aren't so you know what can we do individually and systemically to almost put the genie back in the lamp so to speak <laughs> great question great question um yeah, we we engineer our own our own environments, and um, you know if you think there's um, if you think about the demand that we're under, right, from very low to very high, okay, with energy and effectiveness up the the vertical, then there's a curve, you know, there's a curve. In other words, if our life isn't demanding enough, if there's not enough pressure, if we don't feel stretched, if we don't feel challenged, we drift down into a state where we're almost languishing and we our energy drops, our motivation drops. We can even get anxious and confidence drops because we're not pressurized enough. And then there's the kind of what you could call the good zone where the demands are just right for our needs. Um, now, we, we then engineer that to a fair extent through our achievement need, commitment, conscientiousness, and so on. And many people feel very uncomfortable if they're not busy enough. But the, the, the trick is to recognize, are you in this zone or have you drifted a bit down the overwhelmed side? Because then that's where, you know, your sleep can be affected. You can get more anxious. You become less effective in the decisions you make. Things take longer. Uh, you start maybe alienating your own team through dysfunctional behaviors and so on. And you're gradually spiraling into a pathway that takes you to a bad place. Now, I think it helps enormously if we have just got enough self-awareness to realize where we've gone to. Um, and, then, and then, of course, um, you know, the real, the real thing in all of this is that we, irrespective of the pressures we're under, we need to build a balancing system that's as strong or stronger than whatever those pressures are. Uh, and that's where, you know, I think resilience comes in because that's, that is essentially this balancing system. And I mean, and the big thing I think about resilience is it's not a quality. Many, I mean, many people see it as a quality, you know? I've always coped with life. I always will cope with life. Don't need to give it a second thought. A very dangerous assumption, a very dangerous assumption, because I really don't think it's a quality. I think it's a collection of things we've learned to do. It's a collection of skills. And if you see it that way, then, you know, you'll become protective of it. You'll be curious about it. You'll want to add skills. And ideally, if you're managing other people, you'll want to pass those skills on. Yeah. You'll want to have a resilient team through the skill base rather than just assuming it's something that's kind of wired in. I think, <laughs> I'm not I think sure that's the question you asked. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that, that all really chimes, Bill, because I think I've gone through a 
where you do just internalize that and you you then question yourself and go but i can cope with anything what's going on here? yeah that's right and what i found quite cathartic is having people around who you trust who you can then externalize that with and say do you know what i am really struggling i am on the wrong side of that curve and actually the response that you get from people is quite incredible because they don't blame you or they don't try and rescue you but they hold the space and say well talk to me about it then and let's try mm. and work out something so it literally is a conversational response i think is is yeah guess how i've seen it and what you've described yeah. is right about having that little warning sign when you know it's tipped to the wrong side of the balance mm-hmm. and, and i guess before you even need to invoke the resilience gene you kind of go something's wrong here i've got to do some corrective action so yeah no that's uh, that's really helpful thanks no, that's absolutely right we don't when we start to drift we've really got to navigate our way back rather than just doing more and more overwork neglecting sleep exercise goes, family time goes, you know, just the imbalance comes in in order to compensate for it, our work lives being effectively out of our control. And then we're in trouble. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. I know, um, but I have a background in psychology and having done a lot of work on myself over the years and we'll do a lot more. Um, my my teller, I've learned now, it, one of my tells is, um, I can't make a decision and I don't mean like a big work decision. I mean, I, I can't even decide what to have for tea. And I know if I start going to that place, I'm like, oh, hang on a minute, man. And I've just learned now that's a real kind of a warning sign that little things that normally I wouldn't even think about. I'm like, I just, I just don't know what to eat. Mm. Or something really, it's a little, little things I can't make decisions on for me. So I think that's, that's really good advice to sort of do that work on yourself and that self-awareness piece around when I'm starting to go the wrong side of that. And I love your model, uh, Bill, that you shared, because I, I can I can visualize that and I can think about when I'm at different parts. I think that's really helpful to try to figure out when you're getting the wrong side of that that curve, you know, what, what your tells are. I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Debbie, you've got a great question as well. Um, do you want to ask it rather than me reading it out? Because we love to hear from our guests. So Debbie. Sure, thanks very much. Hi, Bill, lovely to meet you. Um, uh, right at the start, you were talking about um, kind of our, we're losing our boundaries between kind of home life and work life and technology has really facilitated this bleeding of, of, of work into home. I was interested in your opinion about where does the responsibility lie for kind of building those boundaries back? Is there is it the responsibility <clears throat> of the individual to set our own boundaries or, or do you think organisations have a share in that responsibility to stop work-life bleeding into our, our home time and, and home headspace as well? Yeah, um, it should be a combination of the two. <clears throat> it should be something that an organisation thinks about um, because they don't want exhausted people making bad decisions um, because they become more and more exhausted and ineffective. So it should be both, but it's not necessarily both. And um, if you are not in an organization that is helpful in terms of setting boundaries and so on, then it becomes our decision. It has to be our responsibility. Um, and in this whole subject, you know, um, and I'm certainly seeing this now, many people get caught up in what they can't control. So many people get caught up in what my boss ought to be doing. Um, This organization should not allow emails to be sent beyond six o'clock. We shouldn't have to work at weekends and so on and so on. They get caught up in what they can do nothing about. When that happens, they've basically gone to a mindset of helplessness. 
and they're waiting for the organization to make the change that they need. Now, helplessness is an incredibly destructive mindset. I mean, it goes right to depression. So as much as possible, we've got to say to ourselves, okay, this organization is not helping me, but what can I do? And then that can get to just decisions we make about where the boundaries are. And um, that's not necessarily easy, but it's usually not easy because we resist it rather than we're deliberately told not to. Look, I, I know people who are working in organizations where they try and have an email boundary, say around 10 o'clock, and they're told, no, you can't have an email boundary at 10 o'clock. We're involved in some international deal. We've got clients in the West Coast of the US. They need to contact us, right? But the number of people who tell me a story like that are incredibly small. The, the real resistance to having an email boundary is us. We don't like the idea that emails could be coming in that we are not looking at. We feel a bit anxious about it. We feel, you know, there's things going on here and I'm not a part of it. I'm not a part of the team. The team are looking at these emails. I'm not looking at them. I'm out of the, I'm out of the loop. So I think, you know, we contribute a lot to this just through the kind of people we are. But I think we need to, to, to create boundaries. And um, boundaries now, pandemically related, are tougher. You know, we, we, we don't have the commute home. Um, we don't have the routine of having a shower and changing clothes at the end of the working day. Many people are finding it really difficult to separate work from non-work. But I mean, we can, we can do things. You know, um, the end of the working day, for example, could be an opportunity for a brisk walk or cooking, connecting with our kids, but switching the technology off. Um, walking away from the laptop, starting cooking, connecting with your kids, still on a conference call, not a great idea. <laughs> we need to clarify where those boundaries are. And, you know, many of us know that if we're looking at emails all the way through to bed, we don't sleep well. So just having an email boundary, maybe a couple of hours before bed, gives us better sleep, gives us wind down time, gives us time to watch a movie and relax. Yeah, <clears throat> very wise. Um, I don't, I don't know what, what if you'll have any kind of wise words on this, but I'm hoping that you will. But what do we do about that, um, that kind of endemic senior leader culture where it's kind of, you know, work hard and, um, you know, the, these people are our role models in organisations and they, you know, after they survive on like, no, you know, a few hours sleep and they're, you know, they're, they're up at the crack of dawn and they're, you know, they, don't work, they work through their lunch and they're leaving the office late and they seem to get through three times as much as anybody else. And I, I had something just this week, actually, with, uh, again, won't obviously say who it is, but um, a senior team in an organisation that I know uh, where they were talking about well-being and they were talking about, you know, encouraging people to take a lunch break. And the senior leader sort of said, well, wh why would we do that? And in this day and age, you think, well, really? But that's still happening. How do we start to, to break this down, this culture of, you know, it's cool to be seen to be working super hard. How do we break it down? What do we do about that? It is, it's, it's really difficult if you've got somebody at the top who's giving messages like that. <clears throat> and you've also got to bear in mind, of course, many of these people are incredibly well supported. Um, they're really well supported in their offices. They're well supported at home. Um, you know, it's, it's unlikely they'll be up at three in the morning with some kitty who's teething. Um, 
but the realities for everybody's life are different. And you, you've got to make decisions for the realities of your life. Mm. Um, now, there could be some layers between you and this workaholic chief executive. And um, those layers create a microculture, okay? So if you like, there's the culture of the organization, but there's also the microculture that anybody who's managing anybody creates. Now that microculture comes from that person's values, interest in people, um, the way they relate to their work, how they balance their life and so on. Some microcultures are incredibly positive, very, very healthy. You know, sometimes I'll get into a conversation with somebody about this and I'll just ask them about the kind of microculture they create. And they'll say things like, look, this is a hand-picked team. I need them to be at their best. It's my job to support them. Um, and that's just a really positive, supportive microculture. Other people, microculture is clearly more like, look, just get on with it and don't bother me. They're over busy. Um, they're stressed. The last thing they need is somebody having a difficulty. But, you know, there could be some microcultures between you and the chief executive that you can actually thrive in. Mm. Uh, that is not detrimental to your well-being. Um, and of course, if you are one of those people who manages a team, it's worth thinking about the microculture you create. Mm. Because even although you're working with a chief executive who's very difficult, you make your own decisions about how you manage your people. Mm. And that should include conversations about how people are dealing with the work demands, the balance they create, the boundaries, and how they don't get overwhelmed in demands that are in, in with demands that could easily just take over too much. I love that. I love that idea of the microcultures and, you know, be, you know, taking back some of that control and being more autonomous and saying, <laughs> I quite often work with, with organizations that talk about, you know, the top leadership. And I, you know, sometimes I think, well, if they're one or two people, I mean, how much kind of, yes, of course, they're powerful in terms of status, but how much sway do they really have in terms of the rest of the organization? So I love that challenge back in terms of create your own microculture. I think that's, that's brilliant. I love that. Um, Katie, we've we got any other questions coming in on the chat. I think we've got one couple coming in, haven't we? Yeah, we've got another question from Laura. Laura, are you, are you happy to read your question? Yeah, thank you. And uh, Bill, it sort of follows on from what you were saying. And like Emma, I love the idea of the microcultures. Sort of what I think we're doing, but we haven't actually had a label for it before. And sometimes sort of naming it can, can really help solidify it. So the question sort of led on from that was about creating a space where managers are comfortable to speak to people about what you were mentioning about the sort of the burnout about the the conscientiousness about the demands um been doing a lot of work in my own organization on a sort of a coaching culture and getting managers used to a much more supportive conversation um but i do get a feeling sometimes that managers are worried about what they're going to hear um and it's about how you, you some ideas really for for how to support managers who may have that fear um would be really helpful and that's such a relevant question absolutely because i think one of the main reasons that people don't get into conversations about how people are feeling how they're coping and so on is because they themselves are very busy 
And they don't want to end up taking on even more responsibility with having to check on somebody on a regular basis, advise, maybe take on issues that they're not equipped to deal with at all. But, you know, I think if if a manager is seeing um, that a colleague, and this obviously could be a manager to their team, but this could be across the way as well, you know? I mean, it could even be up the way. You could be, you could see some signs that somebody's drifted into this pathway in, in your boss. Now, would you have that conversation with your boss? Would you say to your boss, you know, look, um, I've known you pretty well for quite a while and, you know, you're not your usual self. Um, are things okay? Because we could have that conversation. Um, and there's people who I see who've been nudged in my direction uh, by a colleague, by a manager, and sometimes by somebody who works for somebody. <clears throat> so if you see that responsibility for other people as being just a general um, thing rather than just for your team, it makes it a, it potentially, it makes it a healthier culture, more open culture. But okay, let's say a manager has gone into a conversation with somebody, they can see a few signs and so on. This could open a door to many things. It could open a door to familiar territory, like someone's really anxious about change, ambiguity, the possibility of losing their job, maybe becoming overwhelmed by too many demands, not having enough resources themselves. This should be comfortable territory for a manager to discuss with a member of the team. But it could be about other things. It could be about a relationship falling apart. It could be about a relative who's seriously ill um, and that's affecting how they are at work. So a sympathetic manager should be able to relate to that and maybe relate to that from their own experience. But they're not a counsellor. They're not a psychologist. Um, so the responsibility is to see if this person's distress is affecting how they're doing at work and if the person needs any additional help as far as work goes. But then ideally, the manager should be able to signpost the individual for other sources of support. And many organizations have that support built in. Um, and in other cases, maybe external agencies. But the manager shouldn't end up taking responsibility for something they can't really manage. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's, that's that's a great point, Bill. Again, you know, we very often talk to um, to, to managers and leaders we're working with on, on kind of change programs about boundaries and, and just sort of say, you know, trust trust your instinct. If you start to feel like I'm a bit out of my depth here, just there's no there's no hard and fast, just go with the gut feel. Yeah, yeah. Feel like, Hang on a minute, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, then go and ask for help. And, and everybody's got kind of a different point at which they probably would ask, would ask for help. But that would be kind of my advice there is to just think about those boundaries because we don't often mention them. So mm -hmm. to leave when doing, well, typically organizations don't mention the boundary piece. So I think it's really important. And I know I've I've fallen foul of that when I, you know, early on in my career when I was a new manager. And because I have a background as a psychologist, I thought I could deal with some stuff that I really should never have been dealing with. So I learned the hard way to manage boundaries. So mm. um, in terms of, Companies you work with that are getting this right, that are doing really well, that are kind of leading the way, what sorts of things are they doing? What sorts of um, ideas and approaches can you share um, to help us all to, to, to be great at this? They are trying to encourage those conversations. 
um, and they're giving people coaching in the kind of conversations that really work. They're providing training to um, really all levels around this idea about what what it is to be resilient in a highly pressurizing organization, uh, breaking down the nuts and bolts of that so that people can make active day-to-day decisions about how they manage their energy, their emotional well-being, uh, how they manage their their balance to life, the boundaries and so on, but also giving people ideas about what they can do just in terms of mindset um, to help them stay on top of um, the demands and to feel pretty good uh, emotionally. So they're providing individual training to people, they're, they're encouraging conversations, and some are, you know, are trying to take initiatives around encouraging people not to send emails in the evenings and at weekends and so on. But it is, it is really in terms of, it's, it's really around the microculture piece. It's about helping managers to see the impact they have through their day-to-day conversations with their people. Yeah, no, I love that. And Pity Justin's not here. So his, his business is called Everyday Resilience, about mm. building kind of everyday moments that, that build that and we've got a lot of love for the microculture theme in in the chat actually both Perry and um, Alexandra have kind of made some some great comments about the microculture piece which I think is, is really interesting um just looking forwards now then um what do you think are the big opportunities in terms of you know the the global experience we've all been through with with the pandemic what what are the silver linings for you what are the opportunities there to, to do things differently um, the, the silver lining piece is a really fascinating question. I mean, I could look at this at many levels. Um, I mean, I um, in, in some of the workshops I've been doing recently, I've been talking about how could people could deal with uncertainty. And um, uncertainty often makes people anxious because they automatically think about what could go wrong. Our head goes to the anxious place. But uncertainty also brings things into our lives that we didn't anticipate, which we might appreciate. Yeah. And I've been asking that question of people and most people I've talked to can think about something that they didn't anticipate that's come into their lives in the last seven or eight months that they're really appreciative of. Mm. And that's a very balancing thought, you know, Uncertainty is rich ground for positive change. And people say nice things. You know, they say things like, it's nice to see my kids midweek. They say things like, um, I've taken up cooking. Um, I've taken up a musical instrument. I'm, I'm connecting regularly with friends that we haven't seen for ages. And so on and so on. But it's nice to see there's two sides to uncertainty. Mm. It's not just a source of anxiety. And I think in the bigger picture, um, a lot of things will come out of this that we could go on to appreciate. I think we'll think much more carefully about the balance between working in the office and working at home. Um, I don't think there's really much point in spending 10 hours in an office with a two and a half hour commute in total to do the kind of work you could easily do at home. So I think people will challenge that. I think the idea of getting up at four in the morning to catch the first plane from some airport for a two hour meeting somewhere back home by midnight will probably disappear. And it should have disappeared years ago. So I think the potential for a better balance is real. 
uh, more time to invest in taking care of yourself, more time for relationships, more time for your families. That's highly possible without losing what an office gives us. Because an office is a dynamic living thing uh, which has an energy to it uh, that can spark creativity and collaboration. Um, but it's massively fragmented. Um, and we can have a more focused day working from home. So I think we'll get that right probably in the future, uh, which would be beneficial to, uh, to um, at the balance and to energy and well-being. I, I mean, I'd like to think that this whole experience has made us more compassionate. Um, I'd like to think that people, particularly perfectionistic people, have just found a degree of balancing self-kindness, you know, um, rather than feeling guilty and feeling they're letting people down and they're failing and so on. Because I've seen many people who've just been completely overwhelmed. You know, the time we were homeschooling on top of a full-time job, um, I mean, the only way you could get through that without getting really stressed was just to take an utterly pragmatic mindset. How much time do I have to give? might be an hour a day, but make the best of that hour and be trusting that your kids will catch up when they go back to school. And at the same time, maybe negotiate some demands with your manager because you know you can't achieve it all. Negotiate deadlines and so on. And I think these ways of thinking may just become wired in to give us more potential control over circumstances that in the past used to be overwhelming. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about what could come out of this. I think, you know, I'm hopeful that managers as well will see what they can do in terms of helping the resilience of their people. I mean, one big mindset that goes to mental health is a sense of purpose. Mm. Rather than feeling everything you're doing is futile. And many people are seeing purpose in what they're giving to their clients, they're seeing the relevance of their skills. But many people are seeing purpose in being supportive to their teams. Uh, you know, people who are living on their own uh, in accommodation, it isn't great, but not able to come into the office. And they're just checking in on those people on a regular basis to make sure they're okay. And that sense of purpose for the teams could grow into something which could be enormously healthy in the future. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Bill, we're pretty much at time. So um, I think that's a you know, wonderful message or messages to, to leave it on. So hope and optimism that there's going to be more compassion. We're going to have better conversations. We're going to um, finally get our heads around what it really means to have proper work-life balance and stop having to get up to get planes at four in the morning which sounds great to me uh, although I always say if it's before five I'm like it's the middle of the night and I refuse to do it so there you go but I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today it was a fascinating conversation and I think we probably could could keep going for, for hours um definitely some some food for thought there and some some you know all the whole thing was great but I think certain elements have really resonated with people and I think we might come back to you for some some thoughts in the future on that so huge thank you to you Bill um and uh yeah anyone got any further questions just pop them in the chat and we'll try and follow up afterwards i'm just going to hand back over to katie now to do the final wrap up and then you are free to go to enjoy the rest of your wednesday so massive thank you to bill and just back over to katie to, to, to finish up thanks ever so much emma thank you thanks, thanks emma and <laughs> thank you so much for what an amazing show and um i, I love the way it was all wrapped up at the end as well that was brilliant 
Um, we're going to take a short break over Christmas. So this is sadly the last show of 2020. Um, but thank you to everybody who's watched, who's downloaded. Obviously, we have a few regular guests that we love to see each fortnight in the uh, live studio recording. So thank you for all your support this year. We will be back in January and we've already got loads of more fantastic special guests joining us. So we're going to be talking about things like data and insights with Sam Knowles. We're going to be talking about how to be agile in HR with Natal Dank and the power of personalization. Oh, I can't even say that word, personalization with Rob Baker. And that's just three of the ones that we've got lined up and there's plenty more to come. If you haven't already subscribed, then we'll make sure that we pop the link in the chat if you've joined us live or in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Sign up, then you'll get the reminders when we're back. The first show of 2021 will be on the 13th of January. So hopefully we will see some familiar faces there, potentially some new ones. Tell your friends. If you do download the podcast, make sure you like and share. And that's it for, for Research Show 2020. So thanks, everybody. Also, thanks to Belinda and Justin, who um, weren't able to join us today. But rest assured, they will be back in January with us. So that's it. Thank you. Thanks, thanks everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.